The information and opinions expressed on these broadcasts are intended to address specific questions asked or situations described on the program and are not designed to constitute advice or recommendations as to any disease, ailment, or physical condition. You should not act or rely upon any information contained in these broadcasts without seeking the advice of your personal physician. If you have any questions about the information or opinions expressed during these broadcasts, please contact your doctor. Welcome to the train wreck. I'm your host, Dr. Joe, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jason Waller and Angelina Gretton. All aboard. Yeah, welcome to the Trainwreck Radio Show. I'm your host, Dr. Joe, and I'm here with Angelina Grip in studio. How's it going, Dr. Joe? It's going well. The phone number here is 949-650-1015. Jump in the conversation anytime or call us with a question, and you can get on anonymously if you want to uh, ask anything behind the scenes. You do not have to mention your name because we get into some pretty hot topics. And the first topic tonight is... It's 420 tomorrow. This should be an interesting one. What are you doing for 420 tomorrow? Probably staying off the road. <laughs> <laughs> I, saw, I saw something out of a medical journal today saying that um, after 420 p.m. on 420, you don't want to be on the roads. DUIs, driving while intoxicated, goes way up. Yeah, it's kind of scary, right? Especially with the uh, legalization in the last year. I think it's going to be really, really sketch on the road tomorrow. This is our first year of uh, legalized weed. Yeah. Recreational mm-hmm. legalized. So what's going on with that? I wonder what um, it's going to be like tomorrow at work. I wonder how many people are actually going to be calling out sick tomorrow. <laughs> right? You, you mean at your job? <laughs> no, no, just in general. Because Angelina general works in a treatment center. I wonder if we're going to have a well, lot of. No, uh, I well, wonder if I we're going to have a lot of ACAs, a lot of a lot of people leaving against clinical advice tomorrow. Well, just for the day, possibly. And I don't work in a treatment center anymore, Doctor Joe. Have my own private practice. That's remember? true. That's yeah, true. Yeah, I used to. Angelina Grip, LCSW. Right, but just thinking about the fact that you know how things have changed and how the legalization of pot has um, affected productivity, and I wonder if people are seeing that out there you know, business owners and things like that, if it really is um, affecting productivity in general? Because I I personally think it probably is. Well, the Department of Health, I was at the American Society of Addiction Medicine this weekend, and cannabis was the hot topic. Right. All right. Because we're going to have to deal with that as addiction doctors in society. And the, the, the hottest lecture where everybody piled in into a small room where they didn't only expected 30 people and they had about 300 was, um, uh, how to deal with your patients while they're getting sober and they still want to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we went over a couple of things. Number one, what are the indications for medical marijuana? And there really aren't that many. Right. Studies, studies are really, really um, scant, minimal uh, as to the b- medical benefits through clinical trials mm-hmm. that they work. So pain, cancer-related vomiting, chronic pain, and fibromyalgia. What about the indications for uh, anxiety and depression? Because people nope. say, okay. There is no good evidence that cannabis helps depression or anxiety. 
And in, in, and, in and, some and studies, it makes it worse. Right. I, and that's, I mean, that's what I always say. I thought that because yeah. I do know when people are trying to um, get off of take, you know, get off of pot use, yeah. that um, anxiety is a side effect um, and of, you know, the of the taper. Right. It's the main reason why people can't get off it. It's right. the insomnia and uh the, the nausea right. and the decreased appetite and and it's just so, anxiety. So what if someone wants to cut you know stop using pot, stop using cannabis um, recreationally? What would you recommend? What would I recommend? Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's there's no there's no indicated medical um, a therapy mm-hmm. for. Um, Cannabis withdrawal, you usually have to take care of the anxiety. You could do that with antidepressants. You could do that with uh, short-term, non-addictive anxiety medication. Okay. What if they're smoking, say, two grams a day, one to two grams a day? Because that's, that's, you know, kind of significant. Um, yeah. And they're like, I'm just done. I'm going to stop. Um, should they just stop, like, altogether smoking that much? I, I don't. I mean, I don't see why not. They're going to go through probably a week of withdrawal. Okay. And depending on how much they smoke, how how what the strains they smoke, and how much you know percentage of THC, if they're smoking, if they're dabbing, smoking wax, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a lot harder, and that's a different grade of cannabis use. Right. Uh, and real flower smokers consider wax and dabbing to be to not even be you know, smoking weed. Because it's kind of kind of a different subset of drug use because that's some of the reasons they'll say oh it's i'm i need to smoke again because i'm feeling anxious this is i'm freaking out right and when i smoke or when i you know dab or whatever it is um it makes me feel better and then some of the other reasons i've heard is it helps me eat it increases my appetite so there's all these other you know reasons that um i think may or may not well i I think Mm -hmm. they don't make sense um, but a, a huge study by NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, showed that if somebody who is sober off of their quote-unquote hard drugs uh-huh. and they continue to smoke marijuana, mm-hmm. they have a 20% more likely chance to go back to their drug of choice right. or alcohol. And that's what I hear, too. I mean, I've had you know people who are hardcore heroin users that are still uh, smoking weed. But they, they'll say, well, I don't do heroin anymore. But... Um, and, 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 and what's your attitude towards that? I mean, most therapists who don't know addiction would go, eh, that sounds good to me. My attitude is um, I think the goal should always be abstinence. And, uh, and, and you're, still not, you're still not present 100%, right? So uh, it's good that you're not doing heroin anymore. I'm really happy to hear that. But you're still not... Um, you're still not here. You're still doing something to not be completely present. And why is that? So let's let's still we still have some work to do. Listen, if you're shooting dope and then you go to smoke weed, you're probably not just smoking two hits off of a joint when you go home. Well, that's from work. exactly right. But no. you know, the, the problem still there is you're still act. You're still in the addictive cycle. You're still you're still doing something to not be present. You're still yeah. doing something to still not deal Dude. with whatever it is that you're you're dealing. You know, you're trying not to deal with. But it's great that you're not smoking heroin. I'm great. I'm happy to hear shooting yeah. heroin. I'm really happy to hear that. But um, we still have some work to do. You still have some work to do. Well, okay. If you frame it in terms of harm reduction, so that's that's the that was the second biggest topic. Right. Was harm reduction. Mm-hmm. How are we going to stop overdoses and the increasing deaths? I mean, it's set to be in 2018 over 100,000 deaths from opioid overdoses, mm-hmm. mixed drug overdoses, typically. Right. Uh, so. You know, some studies have shown that in the states where pot's been, you know, cannabis has been legalized or decriminalized, 
or medical marijuana, that the amount of opioid prescriptions in Medicaid and Medi-Cal patients have, have gone, down. gone down. I agree. Significantly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Five million prescriptions, you know? Well, if I had the choice, and I'm, and my, my people may shoot me down for this, if I had the choice between treating someone who's a heroin addict um, and someone who was a heroin addict and is now smoking pot or using cannabis, um, and that, that's you know saving them from overdosing and dying, then I would much rather treat that. But the goal s- still is, in my mind, abstinence. But let me ask you a question. So somebody comes in stoned during a session for you. Wh- c- can you do any cognitive behavioral therapy? Can what? you? Can you? Can these? Um, can these patients, these clients, participate in group? When they're stoned and under the influence, no. How about if, um, they're, how about if they don't look stoned? How about if they're, this is just going on in the background? Is it still altering their minds? Uh, from, they're from under the influence, yeah. yeah. They're under the influence, right? So... And um, this is where we, you know, have to participate in transparency. But are they going to – clients lie. People lie. So no, I'm not no always going to know that. I don't. <laughs> yeah. If I sat here and said, my clients don't lie to me, yeah. um, I'm the biggest fool in this room, right? So it's, it's about, like, getting to that point, working with them and saying, listen, this is the goal. So when you show up here in this room today, where are we at? How about, how about parents who's – 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds are smoking pot on a regular basis, and they're thinking, oh, it's only weed for a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. And there's, we're in Corona Del Mar. We're, we're in Newport Beach. Um, Corona Del Mar High School, about 60% um, of the students smoke weed on a regular basis. I think there is such a, uh, a lack of education around uh, cannabis on the developing brain and the fact that you turn around um, that people turn around and say it's just cannabis that my kids doing is such uh, is such the wrong thing to say mm-hmm. any type of substance on a developing brain is so damaging you say that even worse for alcohol yeah anything you, that is mind altering on a, on, a, on let me say that again anything that is mind altering on a developing brain is absolutely damaging to that to that brain so mm-hmm. You know, you can't just say it's just cannabis to a 12-year-old. It's because that's not true, right? Studies prove it. Your, studies I, your prove IQ it. goes down by eight points. If you start smoking weed before the age of 15, by the time you're 21, your IQ is eight points lower than it than mm-hmm. it was. Uh, and your brain weight is but, decreased. But, but the question that's not By being, several percentage points. You know, because I did those two. I did and my internship. We need all the help we can get. In, in a school district. The question that's not being asked is why... Is your child choosing to um, go and smoke weed? Is it just peer pressure? Because for some of these kids, for some of these kids, when they smoke weed, it makes them feel better, right? Um, in in different ways, because maybe they've got they've got some kind of um, you know something going on with them mm-hmm. where they actually that needs to be addressed. For some of them, it's attention. For some of them, it's anxiety. For some of them, this depression, and so on and so forth. So for some I think, of I these kids, I think a big kids, part of it's glamorization. Well, there's more to it than and that. And now though. there's advertising, but and you, it's but shown that but advertising increases that, use. That smoke weed and say, you know what? It actually helps me focus better, and they're actually telling the truth. So for those kids, it's like, hold on a second. We need to look at this a little bit deeper and say something's going on with your brain that we need to really yeah. invest. 
Lost society. Mm, there's more than that. That's distractions, it's, man. It's and the, crappy food. We're, yeah. eating, we're, we're eating such crap. Our brains are I'm not, not. I'm just saying we're, we're not looking. Our natural looking, transmitter We're states. not looking at the kids. We're not looking at them and for who they are and really, really trying to do the investigating into why. Why does it work for you? Because these kids have um, attention deficit issues that don't need the Ritalin and things like that. Right. They need skills to actually um, learn, be taught better, be taught in ways that work for them so they don't end up addicts later. They don't end up um, on medication that's unnecessary for them. They don't, yeah. uh, they don't be, and, th- and they're not, you know, developing yeah. addictive types of behaviors and end up in treatment centers. Early medication by ch- adolescent psychiatrists. Exactly. That's huge. Because how many, how many people have we treated that were on, you know, that started smoking weed, that uh, ended up on, you know, uh, R- Ritalin, Adderall Ritalin. and Ritalin and you things know, like Ritalin that. for six-year-olds now. It's 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 absurd. How do you how do you diagnose ADHD in a six-year-old? It's absurd. How it's about like natural? It's absurd. Anyway, God, that's I would have been on Ritalin when I when I was <laughs> at two. I can't tell you anyway. how many sedated kids that I. Yeah, <sighs> and, and and you just gave you just gave a, a talk to um, up to and coming districts. LMFTs and LCSWs, and LCSWs yeah, on yesterday. technology addiction. I did. As I'm staring at my phone right now. I did just yesterday. Yeah, I did. Well, mm-hmm. I'm staring at my phone because I want to introduce our guest. I'm sorry, I, went on, I was on a rant. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay because these guys look like one of them. They want to jump in. They and, do, uh, and we're you know uh, we're really blessed to have Freddie Negretti in studio with us. How you doing, Freddie? Great, great. Thanks for having me. The yeah, right. Is- <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Freddie, about a year ago, put out a book, Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. <laughs> awesome title. Thank you. Uh, and I want to start off by asking you, also in studio, let's um, introduce your guest, who uh, is infamous in his own right. Yeah, this is uh, a really good friend of mine and a co-worker. We work together. He's a tattoo artist. He's a fantastic uh Entertain a singer, guitar player. Uh, this guy is just full of talent. This is Louis Perez the third. Thank you. And if you've heard of Louis Perez uh, the second or junior uh, in Los Lobos, yeah, oh, his really? dad. Oh, go ahead, Louis. That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, Louis I'm is the, the new <laughs> lead singer for Manic, Manic Hispanic. Hispanic. Yeah, I'm and, the third. Yeah, and and for us. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I love uh, Manic Hispanic. Uh, Gabby was the lead singer. Uh, he was in recovery. He was a great guy. He passed away what, a couple years ago. Yeah, two years ago. And uh, <clears throat> so Louis is the new lead singer, and uh, that's a fantastic band. Say something about that, Louis. Um, well, I, we we loved Gabby a lot, and he was a great friend of ours. And uh, it was a it was I was a little scared to do that, and uh, you know, everybody's welcomed us so greatly and graciously, and. Uh, what better way than to have somebody who was in our family to kind of uh, carry the torch and bring the legacy of laughter and culture and tradition on? So here we are. Nice. So Freddie, let's uh, let's talk about the title of the book. How did you uh, come up with it? Well, uh, when I was in Youth Authority, I worked in the print shop, and uh, one of the ways, you know, and I, uh, of course, uh, I was an artist in there, you know, and one of the ways I got uh, my tattoo designs out to everybody in the other prisons was we created stationary paper for people to write home on. So uh, I worked in the camera room at the print shop and uh, the, the, the instructor there was very uh, lenient with us as, as long as we printed the stuff for all the prisons 
at the end of the day, he let us print our own stuff. So I'd create these designs, and I'd shrink them down, and we put them in the corner of a paper with lines on it. And uh, we printed up thousands and thousands, and we mailed them to all the prisons. So one of the designs uh, that I created on there was uh, the comedy tragedy mast. Uh, I used to look through magazines for ideas of to draw things, and I saw those masks in this advertisement for an acting workshop. And uh, I immediately thought of my favorite song, which was Smile Now, Cry Later. Uh, who sings that song, Louis? Smile Now, Cry Later. The Midnighters, right? Uh, I think they may sing a version of it. They did a version of it, Smile now, cry later. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it was my favorite song. And I put that connection together. I thought, this looks like smile now, cry later to me. You guys will be performing that song later on in the show. (laughs) (laughs) Is it laugh in my face and smile like cry later? That's it. (laughs) And uh, so I I drew my own version of those masks. And uh, I wrote uh, smile now, cry later in fancy cholo writing on it. And uh, we printed it up, mailed it everywhere. And now, when people see those masks, they don't think of comedy tragedy. They sm- think, smile now, cry later. It's become uh, one of the staple tattoo designs. and So it's just amazing. So since uh, I, cre- I, I didn't really create the design, I made the connection of uh, comedy tragedy to smile now, cry later. So, and uh, what it means to a lot of people, you know, smile, li- smile now, cry later could mean a lot of things, but part of it is uh, when you're living la vida loca, and you're living hard and fast, it's kind of like you're smiling now, you know, you're laughing now, but you're going to cry later, you're going to pay later, and it's something that we accept as our lifestyle, you know, yeah, I'm smiling now and I'm going to pay later, but I'm living my life, you know, la vida loca, you know. Yeah, you had that in several aspects of your life. You, you know, you were addicted to a couple of things growing up and then, you know, hitting your 20s and you you started out, you started out kind of, you know, at almost in the negative. Like your your parents went to jail when you were 2 years old. Right. Yeah, my my and, parents And then you went into foster care. Right. My my parents were uh both uh, Pachuco gangsters, oh, wow. you know, in East L.A., uh, around the Zoots, just the end of the Zutsu era. And uh, the, a fascinating story, you know, uh, in, in East L.A., in Boyle Heights, there was a Jewish community, you know, and, um, and uh, the Jews uh, mostly migrated there from Europe. And, um, and they didn't last long there. They moved out, moved to the West Side, because they had this uneasy relationship with the Hispanics. They didn't get along with the Hispanic community. And uh, the thing, though, that the Jews hated the most is when their daughters would go with the suave Pachuco guys. <laughs> and uh, that was my mother and my father. Oy. My father was a Pachuco gangster, and my mother fell for him, and, and uh, she ended up joining the gang and all that. But they went to prison when I was two years old. So my sister and I, uh, and we had no other family, you know, so we uh, ended up in, in the foster care. Fortunately for us... Did you grow up together? Yes, fortunately okay, nice. for us, Good. we were kept together Good. because a lot of kids get separated in that process. And there was a foster home that took us in. Uh, they were, you know, middle class white, and uh, and it actually uh, turned out to be uh, a very traumatic uh, childhood for us because they were quite abusive. Uh, their their thing was that they were going to beat the Mexican out of us, you know, and teach yeah. us how to how to live. So uh, how'd that go? Uh, not not too good. I ended up <laughs> I ended up rebelling, you know. So what what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? Well, uh, you know, in in uh, San Gabriel Valley and and uh, actually the outskirts of LA, 
<clears throat> you have uh, all these cities, San Gabriel, Baum Park, you know, El Monte, and uh, you have the poor part of the city, usually in the center of the city. It's the barrio. It's, uh -huh. where, the, it's where the Hispanics live. And then on the outside, you have the middle class white. Uh -huh. So in the foster home, I lived in the white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But uh, I knew about the Mexican neighborhood. And, you know, you know, my foster dad used to be a drunk. And when I was a kid, he'd come in my room and he'd be like, you dirty, rotten Mexican, you know, you lazy Mexican. So oh, wow. I, it was uh, ingrained in my mind that I was a Mexican and I belonged over there on the other side of the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, eventually I rebelled and uh, I went and I, I lived with the Mexicans. I joined a Mexican gang and I became very much involved with that gang activity and that gang life. So that got you incarcerated at an early age. Yes, I actually yeah. became very institutionalized because uh, I was uh, <laughs> I was trouble. I mean, mm -hmm. I was bad. I'm such a nice guy now, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I find it hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. You, you um, before we <laughs> no. before we came in here, you mentioned that you kind of spent um, between 14 and around 22, 21, 22, being institutionalized, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The longest period of time that I would stay out at, at once was two months. And I remember recording that, remembering that I've been out two months. But uh, I didn't last long on the streets uh, because I did everything uh, that you can imagine. I was heavily involved in gang violence. I robbed, I burglarized. I, I was just a bad seed, you know. <laughs> but I feel like I was driven into that, you know. And, um, you know, of course, uh, coming from the white neighborhood, joining a Mexican gang, they knew, they knew me, we went to school together. You know, they knew I was, uh, to them, I was like Fred Barker, you know, like from the white <laughs> side, you know. Uh, so I, I really had to prove myself. And that meant, you know, the toughest guys in the neighborhood were the craziest ones who were willing to go and do anything, you know. So I became one of those really crazy homeboys. Now, I know that they use derogatory term banana. Would, would they would looking at you like that and you had to, you had to prove yourself to be on that, be on that term? Uh, what, what term? Banana? Yeah. White on uh, the, yellow on the outside, oh. white on the inside. <laughs> or is that the Asian community? That's a new one. Yeah. No, I think it, it's what would it make? I, I guess, uh. <laughs> I like it, but I don't, I don't understand it. Not me either. <laughs> Joe makes yeah. up his own words. Wait, no, that, you, you that's the Asian gang. That's the yeah. Asian gang. Yeah, <laughs> see, you have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> We're about to go to break. Many? Maybe it's a good time for a break. <laughs> Ooh, wow, yeah. I'm, I'm rarely blush on yeah, the air, man. Yeah, you are blushing right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time for a break. <laughs> <laughs> and career comes to the end. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it is break time. Let's, let's pull this show off a train wreck. Yeah. Uh, the phone number here, if you dare to enter this conversation, is uh, 949-650-1015. This is the train wreck, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the train wreck. Quite apropos. Yeah, yeah, totally right. In studios, Freddie <laughs> Negretti, author of Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos. I need my reading glasses. My life in black and gray. So black and gray, that means a lot. Yes. You, 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 you brought that from where you were between the ages of 12 and 21 to, to the streets, to, to the public. What, what's well, black and gray? Well, uh, you know, black and gray is a style of tattooing uh, that's come to be known as uh, black and gray realism. And it has its roots in the Chicano culture of East L.A. and the California prison system. 
and uh, because that's where it was developed. And uh, these images in the Chicano Barrio, uh, revolutionary type in images of uh, the Mexican Revolution, Aztec imagery, because you know, uh, to to us that was our culture, and uh, we believed ourselves to be warriors. You know, and um, and women, we love women, <laughs> and uh, you know, so putting together the beautiful woman with the big sombrero and the gun belts, the chara girl, you know, and also you know uh, our parents being Catholic, uh, we we had great respect for. Uh, Catholic imagery, Jesus mm -hmm. and Mary and praying hands. So all these images were very, very important to us. And uh, these are the images uh, that we tattooed on ourselves, you mm -hmm. know. So, you know, like, like I said, I was uh, being institutionalized and also having some art ability. My father was actually a prison artist. Oh, and, wow. uh, you know, and so I was always drawing. And everywhere I'd go, I'd be the the go-to guy for artwork. So I got really good, you know, with, with my art being locked up. But uh, finally, uh, when I went to Youth Authority for a gang-style shooting, um, <clears throat> and I just was trouble in there. You know, uh, I was involved in starting riots. Uh, you know, so it's just everything bad. And uh, <laughs> I ended up in uh, this program called Tamarack Program. And uh, this, this program, it was a lockup program for uh, you know, uh, kids that were just completely incorrigible. You, there's no solitary insane. in juvie. Is there? There's, is are you allowed to put kids in solitary? Oh yeah. I, oh yeah. For uh, for nearly a year in juvenile hall, when I was 14 years old, I spent nearly a whole year in a lockup program, in a cell by myself, mm. uh, only coming out for a half an hour a day. Mm. Wow, that's because intense. I was completely beyond control, and so this is a. Lockup program in youth authority, and that's when I was fourteen. So, so what uh, are they trying to do to you? It sounds How like the best thing for developing brain is to well, be that's put what in I was just trying to find eight out. By eight room, yeah, uh, eight by two room. So Tamarack is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, Tamarack program. So, so what what is their goal in in Tamarack? Well, you know, at that point, they just you're beyond control. So, they their policy towards us was this: look at you're going to be in this lockup program completely separate from the whole institution we'll bring you ink we'll let you tattoo we'll bring you pornography just please don't kill each other you know wow <laughs> and so you know yeah. at the very same time is uh when the homemade tattoo machine uh was invented in california state prison huh. and i remember they sent us the plans I mean, we we had this beautiful drawing of how to make a homemade tattoo machine <laughs> from an eight-track tape player you know, and, so, and we had everything. You're everybody was busting open there. Wow, you're doing with the eight tracks back then. Yeah, the eight tracks. And, and cassettes. There was still eight track players there, but we had cassette players. Mm. And it was a big old motor. You know, our machine was really you oh, know, wow. big and clunky, but you put it together with a toothbrush, a big pen, a paper clip, a guitar string, tape, and that little motor. And, uh, and we did some amazing tattoos, and I got really, really good at it. I was in that program for three years, and um, and I actually had another year to go, but I convinced the staff to send me to board because every day I tell them, man, come on, I can get a job at a tattoo shop, you know? <laughs> Even some of the staff let me tattoo on them, you know? So, wow. So uh, all of a sudden one day the staff go, you know what, uh, you're going to board today, and I was like, what? And I went to board, and they 
wrote a recommendation saying that they felt I had actually rehabilitated and that I was a great artist and I could become an artist professionally. They didn't say anything about tattooing. So I got a year time cut. And uh, so when I got out, you know, uh, I continued with uh, my gangster ways, of course. You know, I was always a gangster. And, uh, but I set up shop in my apartment. And, uh, and I started doing these prison style tattoos and everybody wanted them. And people would come to me and say, hey, man, there's a tattoo shop that opened up on Whittier Boulevard in East L.A. And uh, they're doing pinta style. That's prison style tattoos. Like point. Yeah. yeah. No, with the machine. Oh, professionally. Oh, pintas. Uh, they were ink. doing prison style yeah. tattoos professionally at a tattoo shop. Oh, wow. Which was unheard of. And so people would come and show me the work. And there was this guy, Jack Rudy and Good Time Charlie. And I saw the work and I was like, wow, this looks like it was done in the joint. And so I would send people to them with the work that I did. So eventually I got a job there. And myself, Ed Hardy, Jack Rudy, Good Time Charlie, Mark. And the Ed Hardy. The Ed Hardy. Oh, wow. He, he ended up buying the shop. And uh, he took me under his wing and he showed me uh, all the ins and outs of uh, professional tattooing. He had the knowledge. Ed Hardy. Is a master. Was he an artist too, or was oh, he? Yeah. He was the business guy. Oh, oh yeah. wow! Okay. He's the one that introduced uh, Japanese style to America. Oh wow! He's the one that made that put our style, black and gray style, into the front. He also named uh, the the tattooing at large at the time mm -hmm. traditional style tattooing. You know, so and he he published all kinds of works. His goal, at which became our goal, was to get people to see tattooing as a form of art mm -hmm. because back mm -hmm. then i'll tell you people would look at it and say it's not art uh -huh. they would argue that's not art mm -hmm. and uh, we would argue about it we were trying to get people to see it as an art and that the canvas was the skin mm -hmm. you know and um and i would have to say i look today you know uh some almost 40 years later I, i'm happy to say that we have uh, achieved our objective <laughs> because I don't think anyone can look at a beautiful tattoo and say that's not art. I, oh, yeah. I agree yeah. with you, definitely. So, and we have our, our, it just ended, you know, our show uh, tattoo at the Natural History Museum. They did an exhibit <laughs> ah, on, wow. on tattoos. So, anyways, I ended up working at this tattoo shop and myself and my colleagues, we introduced a new style of tattooing to the tattoo world called black and gray realism <clears throat> it in, it inspired every aspect of tattooing even color realism and and all the styles and it, it, it seems like it's almost the opposite of japanese ink japanese tattoos the black and gray because they're all about a lot of color beautiful right? beautiful colors the, the japanese uh, were way ahead of us of course because uh you know their style of tattooing and that's what ed hardy did and i remember when i first met ed hardy and i was showing him photographs of my work and he's just like wow this is so beautiful blah, 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 blah. and he goes uh, here's some stuff that i'm doing and then all of a sudden i'm looking at people's whole bodies with just one beautiful illustration you know back piece after back piece and i was just like i was just amazed i never saw japanese tattooing before and um and you know, there's black and gray Japanese style as well. Sure. Even it, it even influenced them in terms of uh, the work that they do. But it was just at that time, all these things were coming to focus and to light. So this is the '80s. Uh, this is the late '70s. Oh wow! And early '80s. And uh, 
so you know that's uh, that was my part in uh, the tattoo history. Uh, Which is incredible. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah, absolutely. There. Um, so we're going to go forward a little. Um, you also, I, I did some reading and, and little learning that uh, there was a period in your life where you took a break. I yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did. Uh, you know, because <clears throat> once I became a successful tattoo artist, you know, when I was a, a kid in the gang, mm-hmm. we didn't dabble much with drugs. In fact, we were opposed to heroin. Mm-hmm. I thought I would never stick a needle in my arm. We didn't like heroin because the older guys in the neighborhood would distance themselves from the gang activity. Right. And uh, not only would they not be involved with us and what we were doing, but they would also be fraternizing with the enemy over drug deals and things like that. You know, so <clears throat> so they were looked on as soft. Yeah, and snitch. you know, yeah. as weak. Yeah, right. You know, like they'd be off in the cut. They'd be every time the cops came, they'd run. You know, uh, because back then they had the under the influence law. If you had needle marks, you went to jail. Oh wow! Oh wow! You know? So so, uh, you know, they were they were distant. You know, so as a youngster, I looked down on heroin use. Mm-hmm. Once I became a tattoo artist. My life completely changed. I mean, I was I ro- I was robbing, you know, liquor stores to get money. You know what I mean? And now all of a sudden, I had a real job, you know, and doing what I love and making money. And I fell in love, and I got married, and my life just completely changed. I right. I got a nice house, a car. Uh oh. You know these things. <laughs> it sounds like yeah. now now's a good time to screw it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. That's been the story of my life. <laughs> I started using Amen. heroin. As an enhancement uh, to my yeah. to my good life, no, I get mm-hmm. it. I because get it. Uh, you know, and it started off you know at weddings and picnics and things like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Mexicans yeah, no, are big on picnics. Yeah, this is a little heroin right here. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, just get a little nod on. You know, so um, it's it started like that, and I ended up addicted, and then you know my Were you using life, with your wife, or did you? No, about this no, no, okay. no, no, no. She was a straight arrow. No, mm. it was one of the things that, you know, uh, because my brother-in-laws were actual homeboys, you know, um, and, you know, my mother-in-law, before we got our own house, she had this big, giant house. So all her daughters, she had four daughters, and they had all their husbands living there. We had all these kids and all of us living. And so they'd go to work, and then uh, we would go out and score heroin yeah. and be slamming in the bathroom, and you know what I mean? And then I didn't go to work till nighttime, so... Um, you know, I ended up addicted and, uh, of course things got bad with my marriage and, and, uh, things like that. So I'd get on methadone mm-hmm. and I'd be on methadone for a year and then I'd quit and then I'd start chipping again, get addicted, methadone, quit, chip, you know what I mean? It was a, just a cycle, Vicious. never ending cycle in my life. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so your, your, your take on methadone, cause it's, it's starting to make a comeback. Uh, yeah useful it, yeah no yeah i i don't know i guess when i when i think back it, it was uh kind of useful for me you know because uh, uh of course back then there was no treatment nobody was saying hey why don't you go to rehab it was like there was no rehab you know it's just like <laughs> um so you know the thing is you know when your arms are getting all marked up and veins are collapsing mm-hmm. and uh you know and every time they pull you over you could go to jail you know, so the methadone, it kept you high without some of the other risks. So mm-hmm. in terms of uh, of stopping from getting high, 
it doesn't work <laughs> because and then if you got high on top of it they'd up your dose i mean one time they had me on 120 milligrams of heroin and in order just to function i had to do speed that's when i was introduced to just speed so you know and i i eventually i did speed balls uh -huh. you know because as a tattoo artist you know, you can't be doing a tattoo and, and falling fall asleep. asleep. Yeah, yeah, it's not you know, gonna work. <laughs> and uh, so you do speed to stay up. One time I was doing this guy, and it's a, it, a whole back piece of this Aztec scene, you know, and uh, and so. <laughs> and, and, yeah. No, no, no! I didn't okay. nod out. Something oh. really weird happened to me because I had so much speed and heroin in me. I didn't nod out, but all of a sudden I started dreaming. Like, you know, it was like weird. I'm tattooing and I went into this dream state and on the leg of the warrior that I was doing, I wrote Coyote Sangra, my gang tag, you know? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Not good. And all of a sudden I snapped out of it and I was like, oh, what did I do? You know, and his family's all on the counter around me and I'm like, hoo-hoo, I changed machines, went to a shader and I put this big, dark, you know, unnecessary shadow on the leg, you know? And that tattoo became, a, a, you know, like a pretty famous tattoo. It got... Published and everything. Every time I look at that unnecessary shot, so you didn't have to do a nine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, hey. so you didn't have to do a nine step with this guy. Uh, <laughs> no. no, you placaso. <laughs> I, I put my placaso. Yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? I don't know, but I went in that weird dream state. But That's anyways, so you know, drugs were always up and down for me. You know, and the thing about drug use, you know that. There's some people they they claim to be functional addicts because they somehow maintain a job. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, like tattooing is kind of gives you that opportunity because you're still making cash daily. So mm -hmm. you know, if you make X amount of cash, this much goes for your drug habit, and you could still kind of continue mm -hmm. function mm -hmm. on. You know, they. Sure. But you know, if it doesn't get you, get all your relationships, destroy your marriage, put you in jail. If it doesn't get you like that. It's going to get your health. And eventually, that's what it did to me. You know. Did you have a turning point where you were just like, I'm done enough? It, it, it came way later. <clears throat> I thought I did. You know, in 2004, I was diagnosed as having a congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And I remember when, when I got it, it was really bad. My legs just swelled up like two tree trunks. And I couldn't breathe, you know. And, and uh, you know, I didn't want to go to the doctor. I was, was like, that, for, I ain't going was that cocaine? No, no. Was that it was from the speed and the heroin. Speed, okay, but never cocaine, because you usually get hard feelings. No, nah, you know, cocaine made my ears turn red. I didn't like that. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't I look good. I think I might have really been allergic <laughs> to it. It used to make my nose turn white. <laughs> <laughs> the phone number here is 949-650-1015. Jump in the conversation anytime. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, you know, I was diagnosed with this. So, so uh, it was uh, the diagnosis was uh, drug-induced congestive heart failure mm. and uh, yeah. they told me usually the people that get this congestive heart failure are real big people you know and like i was a skinny guy you know so anyways yeah. uh you know so i was hospitalized for some time i started on all the medications i tried to stay away from drugs and then uh the most unthinkable horrific thing happened to me in my life um my youngest son was uh murdered in a gang incident okay. and this was especially devastating for me because you know uh my his mother and i of course divorced he was living with his mother in in uh grover beach a safe place i got into a custody battle with her 
I got custody of him. I brought him to Los Angeles, and he gets murdered. And to tell the truth, I wasn't oh, all that man. great of a, a father. Once I brought him, I wasn't that good of a father, you know, and I wasn't leading, being that great of an example. Mm. And then he gets murdered. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. You know, so that, at that point, I can truly say I became a hopeless, to the curb, dope fiend. Yeah. The worst ever. I don't blame you. I don't so, blame you. I would. I would have too. Yeah. I don't know. It, you know, I, it's the worst thing. You know, and I still. It's uh, still a very painful thing for me. But you know, I. I. Uh, whenever I see people on the news and how devastated they are when they lose their kids and stuff like that, and we see it and we feel for them, but if if, if you experience it, it's 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 devastating. And for me, you know. Uh, you know, at the time, I had this uh, friend, uh, one of my rich friends uh, that I tattooed in Seattle, who was saying, look, I'm going to come down. I'm going to help you. I'm going to, we're going to open up your own tattoo shop, and da-da-da-da-da. But basically, he was trying to get away from his life. And so he came. We rented an apartment together. And then... That'll get you both sober. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he rented an apartment in the building I lived in, and uh, we had every kind of drug you know, oxycodone, heroin, speed, everything. And we just did drugs all day long. Mm-hmm. And I would go down to the tattoo shop and do a tattoo here and there and go back, you know. So, uh, of course, my health started to get really bad again. You know, and I couldn't deal with life. You know, when I'd wake up in the morning, I would wake up bawling. I felt so much guilt about my son's death. I just could not live with myself until I took that shot of heroin that first shot and made it all go away. I didn't care anymore. I didn't. It really just goes away. Can you yeah. imagine something that powerful that we're up against to make the death of your child go just? And it really, right. it does, it does go away. I, I would immediately stop yeah. crying, and, uh, and I and I wouldn't care. But I, you know, I couldn't think about him at all, and it was easy not to think about him. But if somebody would come up and say, "Hey, I heard about your son. I'm so sorry," I, I would, you know, sh- shut up. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to see a picture of him. I didn't want to hear his name mentioned. You know, I just wanted to be on dope. So eventually, you know, since I already had, uh, you know, this physical problem, my health got really, really bad. You know, and uh, and I, I felt myself really getting sick. So, so, so you're... So what that what, what, so your moment of clarity was then? I mean, what? So, um, so, no, you uh, probably. Long story, but <laughs> let me yeah. try to cut to the no, chase. So, so basically, what happened? You know, what happened after I like that? This guy was, uh, you know, I, I was arrested for possession. Mm. They came and raided that that apartment, and I got arrested. And back then, they had a thing called Prop Thirty Six, yep. which yeah. now I think is good. It was a good idea. Basically, if you got uh, arrested for uh, you know possession for personal use, mm-hmm. you would plead guilty. Mm-hmm. So you already pleaded guilty to a felony, and then they would just release you to go and do a drug Treatment. program. Yeah. yeah. And so mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I couldn't do the drug program. I failed it, and I went to prison. And uh, so that was kind of a moment of clarity for me when I went to prison. You know, all of a sudden, I, I, I uh, you know, I was back on the medication and, and you know, all that. And uh, But as soon as I got out, I went right back. I still had, the whole time I was in prison, I was miserable thinking about my son. But as soon as I got out, I went right back to the same thing. 
I want you to I want you to hold that right there. Okay. We, yeah. we gotta go to break. You've been doing some beautiful things since you got sober. I wanna kinda fast forward to that part because we got about ten, fifteen minutes okay. left in the show. And you've been doing some beautiful things. Okay. And yep. uh, and I don't want to sell that part short. All right. All right. So when we come back, we'll uh, I, I want to get to you a moment of clarity, and then we can you know talk about what you're doing now and how we can get in touch with you. Okay. All right. This is the train wreck. I'm Dr. Joe, and we'll be right back. Welcome back from that very short break. In studio, we have Freddie Negretti, author of Smile Now, Cry Later. Guns, gangs, and tattoos, my life in black and gray. So let's let's get back into the action. So moment of clarity coming up so, pretty soon. Yeah, Reincarcerated. Yeah. You missed you missed prison. Uh, yeah. So, so you had to go back. <laughs> right. That yeah. happens a lot though, actually. That happens a lot. People who have been institutionalized for a long time. Well, I don't think he wanted to go back. You're like <laughs> a but magnet. I think, but I think not this time. You, you <laughs> turned into this magnet a lot. It's like no matter what I did, I ended up in some circumstance where I get arrested, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back then, of course, you know, possession of heroin and speed and those things was a felony, you know? Yeah. So, anyways, but I, I got really sick again. And, of course, like clockwork, I got arrested. Right. But I was really sick. And so when I went into the county jail with uh, drug re withdrawals right plus my existing condition that i hadn't nurtured at all um wow i I thought i was gonna die i got all skinny i couldn't breathe i couldn't lay down they had me in a wheelchair and then i had a heart attack and they took me to the to the uh you know the prison jail Uh i mean the prison hospital and then i came back and uh they kind of you know they had me on all these meds and i had a second heart attack and at that point, I remembered a story when I was when I was young. I have some religious background, but I remember a story in the Bible where this king went to God, or a prophet went to the king and told him, look, your time is up. You're going to die. Get your affairs in order. Mm-hmm. And the king said, you know what? I'm going to go to God myself. He went over the prophet's head, went to God, and God gave him 15 more years. And I don't know why, <laughs> but that... and i forget the king's name but it was a you know in the old testament but anyways but that story just (laughs) kept ringing in my head so i remember you know what i'm gonna talk to god and we all pray when things are really bad for us but but this time i was gonna talk to god and i remember you know getting to an area in the jail i had to go up climb myself up these six stairs you know and it Mm -hmm. took me like a half an hour and i got up there and i said god you know i'm not gonna make any promises because every promise i make i break all i'm asking for is for a little more time so that i can have a chance to redeem myself to be an example to my son who's still alive um please and so the next morning i had a heart attack and uh they so they're rushing me to the hospital, and I should have I should have felt like, uh, you know, request denied, you know, with a big yeah. stamp, you know, <laughs> right, right. And uh, but you know, on the on the way to the hospital, I felt completely different. All of a sudden, you know, I was certain I was going to die in there. All of a sudden, I felt like I was going to live. And uh, within weeks, I made a miraculous recovery, hmm. um, and I was able to go into a, a rehab program because I was supposed to go back to prison. But I painted murals in the jail. For the captain, who gave a word to the judge, let this guy go to rehab. That's so I cool. went to court, and my public defender was like, there's no way. You're going to prison. Just plead mm-hmm. guilty, because they're going to give you four years if you don't take the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went to went to court. She comes in. She goes, I don't know what happened. But the judge <laughs> pulled your file out and said, this guy's going to rehab. Uh, that's so awesome. for me, you know, that was the touch of God in my life. Yeah. You know, and yep. That, yep. that was the eye-opener. When I said that prayer, 
I knew in my heart that I was never going to use again. And I know we're not even, we shouldn't even say that. In the program, you're not supposed to say that. Mm. But I knew in my heart that I was never going to use again. I just needed to find out how. And when I went to this program, Beit Shuva, it's a Jewish rehab. My mother's Jewish, so they took me right in. You don't have to be Jewish to go in. I was going to ask you. I don't yeah. think you do. Yeah. No, you don't have to be Jewish. We're going to have you those just guys have on to the accept show. Yeah, you should. They're yeah. fantastic. Yeah. You, you just have to accept Judaism as part of their three-prong mm. program, which is psychotherapy, 12-step, uh, and Judaism. You know, the ethical part of, of uh, Judaism. So no Our Father but, after the, after the, at the end of the meetings? Yeah, it's, that's a Jewish prayer, isn't it? <laughs> I uh, think Jesus was a Jew. And when they said... <laughs> there you and, go. And they were like, you teach us to pray. He taught them a good Jewish <laughs> prayer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but you know so um but i had to say the thing that helped me the most when i was in there was the therapy because i would have never when i was a 12 year old kid they had me talking to a psychologist because i was tattooing my body up and uh, he said you can tell me anything i'm you know your your secrets are safe yeah. with me da, da, da. and he told my foster parents everything i said and i got beat you know right. after so anyways uh. i never had trust in that yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a gangster. I ain't going to psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I had to say, because they helped me, you know, uh, deal with death. Mm-hmm. The, I, I had to deal with the guilt that I felt in my son's death. I had to deal with his death. And they helped me so much. And now, the way I look at it now is I live my life as if my son is watching down on me. And everything I do, I'm doing to make him proud. That's the way I live my life, and they, that's what really helped me. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's been 11 years now. That's a beautiful way to live. So what are you doing now? I, I just, oh. I, I can't imagine having to get over that. Like, how you do never you, do. How do you, you never uh, do. Yeah, no, I mean, or making you, peace with it, I guess. I guess like make, It's, it's uh, learning to live with it, Yeah. you know, and accepting. I accept my part in that because, uh, and I accept everything that I've done wrong. I was not a good guy, you know, but now I'm living my life making the right choices and doing the good thing, you know? And uh, part of that is uh, going back into the rehab. You know, I, I stayed with uh, Beta Chuva all these years. Uh, they gave me my own group uh, for young people, mostly heroin addicts. So how many how many months sober did you have before you started working with them? Um, you know, I... I be you know I stayed with them as a donor, and uh, mm-hmm. anything that that they asked me to do, it was about three years after I was out out that I went to the head therapist and said, look, I wanna I wanna work with some of the the kids, you know, maybe we can do a group, and you know at the time, you know when I was in the program it was mostly adults, mo- mostly alcoholics, but there was this sudden shift. Yeah. Now all of a sudden it was all young people, all heroin addicts. And they were running amok in that yeah. whole program. There's 150, you know, it's a co-ed program, 150 people in that program. You you also um, work with uh, young, I think young people with, you know, gangs and, and things like that, do you? Uh, well, I speak at CGA meetings. There you go. And what does CGA stand for? Uh, it's Criminal Gangsters Anonymous. Okay. Well, and, uh, you can get addicted to being a gangster. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Being a gangster is an addiction. Mm-hmm. And so is criminology, you know, or whatever the word is for that. Uh, cr- I think criminology is the study of cr- crimes. Right? Uh, so is being a criminal. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and even being a drug dealer. There's guys that you know sell dope and never use it, but they're addicted to that game. They're addicted mm-hmm. to getting the money and and running the drugs and taking the ri- you know, 
So Criminal Gangsters Anonymous uh, deals with that. That's and, you know, they, they like my gangster background story, you know, so I, I go and share at a... That's where I met my co-author, Steve, Steve Jones. Mm. So if someone awesome. wants to go to a meeting like that, how do they, how do they find <clears throat> one? Well, there's one in Venice uh, uh, at, at Beit Teshuvah uh-huh. uh, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. It's a great, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I always go to. So, um, you know, it's a great meeting. And if you're a criminal or a gangster and you're looking for a way out, mm-hmm. you know, go check it out. Yeah, how did you get out? How did you get out of La Sangre? Well, you know, in my neighborhood, there's no getting out. <laughs> you know, people die. Uh, people change. You know, you get older. Of course, you're not going to be a kid running around the streets. But everybody's related over there, you know, and all the older people were once street gangsters. You know, it's just. So you so, still kind of respected you didn't Yeah, you didn't and I leave, still, my, yeah. my homeboys, old homeboys will come and I'll tattoo them. Or the younger guys will come and I tattoo them. My sister lives over there. Occasionally, I'll go over there and visit, you know. But but there's no thing like, hey, Freddie, you know, you got to put that gun back in your hand. We need you to do, take care of business. Or, or do you ever find yourself 12-stepping gangsters? <laughs> Absolutely. Get, get them out. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Yeah, I always, I'm always on the hunt for, you know, I'm not one that goes out and uh, tries to invade somebody's life and say, what you need is this, you know, because I don't think I can change somebody just like that but when when i see attraction not promotion a for hunger when, yeah yeah yeah, yeah when they reach out their hand yeah yeah when wow. i see a hunger and a thirst for it then i jump you know then I, then i know i can work with this person because they're ready you know and unless you're ready to change yeah no change is going to happen there's no miracle here yeah you 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 can't you can't force that on anybody you can't force recovery on anybody no what's the what's the thing that keeps you sober today um you know uh, my work has a lot to do with it because uh you know all those years i was spending using and everything you know the tattoo art had developed even further and uh and so all of a sudden i i'm back focused on my work and I realized like wow I'm still tattooing like the 1970s you know <laughs> uh, so I had to let, allow myself to be teachable you know and I kind of learned my trade all over again what are these youngsters doing you know how are they doing it how can I apply that to what I do to make myself a better artist mm-hmm. and a better person um, that's what keeps me really going is is my walk with God to me spirituality is doing the right thing, doing what's good, making the right choices. And that's my struggle every day. And you're super respected in your field. You work with Louie too, right? Yeah. You, yes. guys, you guys work together? And Freddie tattoos circles around people half his age. Not saying you're old. <laughs> <laughs> but Fre- Freddie tattoos like an up-and-comer, awesome tattooer. And that's what blows all our minds. We sit there and look at him and go, how does he do that? So, he does wow. it like with one eye shut half the but time. Look at him. He's humble, though. I mean, <laughs> he's, well, he, you know, you'd he, have he, to be when you're as awesome as Freddie. That's tattoo. true. That's true. You know, he, he really is. And he's an inspiration just being by him. You know, you just want to get a little bit of his that dandruff lint on you so you can get good. <laughs> how do you keep your ego in check? I mean, well, you, you, you know have what? a lot of reasons to you know institutionalization. I think. I've always looked at it like this. <laughs> I'm a thug. A gangster. I learned this field in prison, you know, and uh, so in that respect, there's not much to be proud of there, you know. It just so happens that 
I helped pioneer this incredible style of tattooing that's respected worldwide. You know, some people come up and they're like, oh, we thank you for what you've done. In the and I'm like, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, cool. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a gangster, you know, trying to make his way. <laughs> You're a good gangster. Yeah. Yeah, a gangster for the good. There you go. <laughs> So do you do? So you only work with treatment centers. Can people get in touch with you to do groups in their center? Well, I tell you what, you know, if uh, they they book an appointment and uh, and tattoo and, appointment, yeah, come right. get tattooed. That's the best way to get. Where are you? Get yeah. to know me. I'm at Shamrock Tattoo, our Shamrock Social Club on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, the famous Shamrock Tattoo. Right on. That's cool. And uh, and you can just uh, call Shamrock Tattoo and book an appointment with me. Well, how about um, your book? How do people get a hold of your book? Wherever that's books on are Amazon. Sold. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. And I also have a coloring book that just dropped. So. Oh wow. For oh, therapy, wow. you know. Oh people, wow. It's an adult coloring book. You know? <laughs> Wait, tell us about that real quick. What's the, uh, what's just, the title? You know uh, the the uh, what is the title? Just coloring uh, with Freddie. Tattoo designs by Freddie Negretti. That's so cool. All and, right. And for tattooers are great book. patterns and, for tattoos. And what it, basically what it is is it's the the outline drawings of uh, tattoos I've done yeah. over the years. That is beautiful. beautiful. And I can't just wait. Retouched them and stuck them in a book. That's brilliant. All right. Freddie Negretti, author of Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. Thanks for being with us tonight. I wish Thanks, we had another right. hour. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thank, you. And thank, thank you, Louis, for moral yeah, support. Louis, Louis, that's yeah, my dog. Yeah, no problem. Louis, Manic Hispanic, where can, we see, where can we see and hear you? We actually have uh, two Cinco de Mayo shows going on at Alex's Bar in Long Beach, May 5th and 6th, with uh, some great bands, Piñata Protest from uh, Texas. Uh, punk rock norteño band and yeah. us and uh the sixth show will be a menudo matinee for everybody hung over from the night before amazing show with, with ricky martin yeah no Rick, well maybe, maybe ricky will come but uh yeah it's great the band's great revitalized and we're just keeping gabby's dream alive man can we have you on the show can we have manic hispanic on the show yeah well, I could, i'm you sure we can get some those locos forever in here nice. especially <laughs> since awesome. one of the stars of blood in blood out asked me to be on the show so. there you go you know freddie was in blood in blood out we do all That's right awesome. so you know mm-hmm. putting it down <laughs> <laughs> another story for another time yeah yeah, yeah, yeah Freddie's got to do it with us, with Manic. <laughs> Angelina, thanks for a great show. Any closing comments? Just no? it was it was awesome. an honor to have you both in the studio tonight. Thank you so, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. It was awesome. All right, guys, thanks for joining us for the train wreck. See you next Thursday, as we do every Thursday night from eight to nine p.m. Look for us on iTunes, the Train Wreck Radio Show. Download all our shows and also the Recovery Show with Dr. Joe and Angelina. Ninety shows from Blast from the Past. Uh, see you next week. Thanks, guys. Until then, stay close.